Cool. So, hey, uh, I've got uh, Arthi Hartshaker with me today. I, I'm, I think I got that right. Yeah, you got it right. Good it enough. Was, it was really good. <laughs> uh, I've known uh, Arthi for uh, a good a good minute or two now, uh, and I, you know, I really wanted to have you on here uh, because you have this really cool and unique blog called uh, Joyful Urbanist uh, that uh, um, I've just I've found really fascinating. Um, so I, I definitely want to talk about that, but there's other stuff yeah. to talk about too. And I think, uh, as I have known you over the years, uh, your career has really changed and evolved a lot. Uh, I think we, we met when you were working in the, the bustling metropolis of Mesquite, Texas. <laughs> That's right. In, in 2007, if you can believe that. Yeah. 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 And uh, you were uh, a planner, basically, on staff at that time. And so why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your, I think you originally had a, you had a degree in architecture, if I remember right, from Notre Dame. And how, how did you, yeah. how did you come to like the planning and architecture world? And then we'll kind of get into what you're doing now, which is a little different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so my undergraduates from um, UT Austin, and I actually did that in urban studies, um, they didn't have a planning, like, planning was in the in the architecture school but it was a master's program so I actually started off like pre-pharmacy and stumbled into uh, an upper level urban studies class and I thought it was amazing um, so then yeah I, I started off as a public sector um, planner I you know during school I had interned with the city of Austin and then after that I did that for about three and a half years. So I started the city of Mesquite, which is where we met. I think you were teaching like an FBCI session in Fort Worth or something yeah. like blast from the past. <laughs> um, and then we had, uh, you know, we had Richard and I had brought you in for a project at, in Mesquite. Um, and then I went to Notre Dame and got a master's of city architecture and urban design and I think I just really had this interest in understanding why, you know, we were we were writing form-based codes. I was kind of following it, um, but didn't uh, was trying to really understand what the standards meant, why people were making certain design decisions, and um, and that's really what fueled my interest. Um, and then I graduated and went back to Texas, uh, was working for the city of Rowlett, helping them kind of get a form-based code across the finish line and then helping them with implementation, which was, you know, that that was actually quite challenging because you're doing a lot of like mm -hmm. internal convincing. Um, and then um, and then I uh, went into the private sector. Um, so I have been doing, you know, private sector work for 10 years from 2013 until now, um, started off at Townscape and the two principals were kind of retiring. So they had some projects and, um, and then, you know, when I was kind of building the pipeline, I basically had a decision to make to stay in Texas or to leave and go to San Francisco. Um, and I took a job with Opticos and, um, was there for a couple of years, um, and then was with Ulta Planning and Design. Um, and around 2018 is when I started um, the blog for uh, Joyful Urbanist. Um, you know, we can talk about that, but it was kind of after my time at Opticos. Um, and um, 
And then during my kind of tenure um, in that, I also taught at UC Berkeley for a couple of years. Um, and now I'm a partner success manager um, in tech. Um, so I've been doing that for three years, started in 2020, um, but really structured that because it's a degree removed from consulting because I do want to practice consulting under, under Joyful Urbanist. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's basically what I've been doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically all of that in a... That's the long and winding road. Yeah. Uh, yes. In, in like as close to a soundbite as you can give me. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, going back to like when we were working at Mesquite, the uh, mm-hmm. the project we worked on back then uh, with all of your colleagues, which actually was a really fun and interesting project. I mean, uh, how would you... It was a form-based code project that we did, uh, and we were looking at different ways to implement uh, the idea of a form-based code citywide. How would you describe like what kind of community mesquite is to somebody who uh, doesn't know it. I mean, it's basically a first ring suburb of Dallas, but it's losing a lot of investment. Um, I think at the time when we were working on that project, um, it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as prevalent to have market studies tied to design work or to form-based codes. I feel like that was definitely very necessary for the type, you know, just the where it was, right? Um, It wasn't really in a transitional area or an area where there's some patterns of walkability. It was um, in uh, what they called the um, newly annexed area and then uh, really looking at a floating kind of code for the extraterritorial jurisdiction. And I think what you guys were testing was, you know, basically like how to apply these principles if the code was brought down within, Mm -hmm. you know, certain areas and, you know, really talking about, um, you know, what that means in terms of new town development. I believe at the time they did have development pressure where people were coming in to propose like subdivisions. And so we were trying to get away from leapfrog development and, you know, suburban sprawl and really think of something that was more responsible. Um, But at the same time, like I didn't really understand things like succession and evolution of of cities. You know, I was still fairly new into Mm -hmm. the practice. And so, um, but yeah, I think, you know, we were at that time, we were trying to do uh, something more like a, 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 a parallel option. Um, and then we ended up adopting by right in the area that the city owned. Um, and then basically, if a developer was asking for services from the city, then they had to develop under the form based code instead of proposing a a PD or something like that. Mm-hmm. And do you, so do you keep in touch with Jeff and some of the folks who were there at the time and track, track implementation of that? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, we've, yeah, we've, um, we've checked in a few times. I mean, um, obviously, I mean, Richard, mm-hmm. uh, I, he and I were on the senior North Texas board together um, yeah. before yeah. I had moved out. And, um, um, and Jeff, yeah, like I will see randomly see Jeff at like APA and stuff like that. Um, and, and we'll always try to connect. I think, I mean, I know that they were having um, some, I mean, it's just that I think that the market study piece comes into play with that, um, right, in, in terms of having a lot of uh, development opportunities in that particular area. They did um, use that parallel code to pull down um, in other kind of greenfield areas within the city. And I think that, um, 
you know, they also did it for, I believe, in um, another uh, portion, like a corridor plan. And those, the codes that we did that were like internal to the city actually, you know, did better um, mm-hmm. and they were getting investment, but the city was also backing, you know, investment um, or they had applied for um, like regional grants to put in like the infrastructure. So um, there was some type of catalyst. And I don't think that in that particular area, the ETJ, there was a whole lot of um, catalyst. But and then I believe the other kind of greenfield area, they had gone through applying it and they had gone through a charrette process, but I don't think it actually um like developed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting deal at the time. I remember, and, and I, I should have mentioned, we were actually working as a sub to Elizabeth Garvin, who uh, was just really, really fun, enjoyable to work with. Uh, she's a planner that's in the Denver area, uh, but has a deep Kansas City connection. So that's how we got to know her. Um, yeah. But uh, it, was, it was fascinating because you had this First of all, you're in Texas, which a lot of people, you know, may not think about uh, initially is like, oh, you know, this is a suburb of Dallas. How is this like on the cutting edge? But you guys really <laughs> were. I mean, you were really pushing the envelope and but but really trying to uh, balance that with a, a, a real rigor about what is marketable, what's doable. Uh, and then how do you leverage investments that the city is going to make itself anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and especially I think, you know, the impetus for the form-based codes, or at least the rationale that we, you know, took to council was we had, um, when we first started, right, we had four neighborhood plans, and a lot of the, um, you know, the implementation kind of strategies and uh, a lot of the kind of um let's say like goals and objectives that the neighborhoods had, you know, revolved around um, built form. And so randomly I had gone to a conference where Monty was presenting (laughs) and I like fell in love. Um, And I was like, we need to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Richard was like, okay, you know, I'll help you. Um, I learned a lot from him because he has a law, you know, degree. And I think that was really kind of instrumental in a lot of ways to understanding how to, actually calibrate it based Mm -hmm. on state law and tie it to the neighborhood plans and the the comprehensive plan but i mean that's where that's where it had started so like you were saying the city wanted to invest in these neighborhoods and it gave it a level of priority um you know where they actually could and we could kind of concentrate those investments but also help people see that you know we were investing or the city was investing by doing these rezonings as well yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting. You know, we, what we had a few trips down there and we worked on that for a while, but it, I think a lot of people don't realize if, if you're not in the middle of the country that really the whole Dallas Fort Worth area has been a pretty incredible laboratory for uh, new urbanism and form based codes and, and a lot of pretty forward thinking planning ideas going on, you know, 20 years now there's, there's a pretty remarkable amount of experimentation that happened in suburban locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know Mesquite, I think probably saw that and you, you guys probably saw that and you're like, how do we do some, some more of this here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also like, uh, you know, uh, following the different firms that have been kind of working in the area. I think, uh, Gateway and Scott Polakov had kind of really pushed the the market studies, and I, and then you know we started to kind of fold them in, right? So we we were definitely watching, and I think you know and seeing what everybody was doing. I think my first CNU was at in Austin in in two thousand six, mm-hmm. and I was really trying to figure out these answers, like how do you um, apply 
these concepts at a at a regional scale, right? So we were working at two different scales, um, and then you know understanding the neighborhood scale, but then you know how does it apply to corridors? Um, and so, yeah, I mean there was definitely a lot. Bill Guidema in the area mm-hmm. has done a lot of like new town development. So even seeing how to work with kind of mass production developers and 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 basically be able to introduce at least a range of um, uh, sizes of housing types within a neighborhood. Yeah. So then uh, later on, you mentioned that you left Texas and went to San Francisco. So yeah. if, did I remember right that you grew up in Texas? Were you from? Yeah, yeah that's what I thought. Yeah, well, I grew up in Texas. And then um, we were in San Francisco for six years. And then I just, we moved back um, <clears throat> basically at the end of 2020. Okay. So was um, it was it work that took you to San Francisco or just the opportunities out there? Yeah, it was work. I mean, my husband was uh, contracting um, with, like, I guess, Facebook at the time, Meta now. But, mm-hmm. um, and so he was doing weekly travel and yeah. uh, he did it for six months and was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and so I had to make a choice. And I think John Anderson in his um, latest kind of recording had talked about, you know, just like learning how to build a pipeline, learning how to win projects. And I feel like I had finally figured that out. I had won <laughs> two projects and then I was like, oh man, I have to, you know, and, uh, and it was fine. Like, I still think San Francisco was the best decision decision for us, you know, in terms of professional growth, but also a lot of personal growth um, mm-hmm. there. And so I think it was really good for us. Like it, it was a, a something that really took us out of our comfort zones and mm-hmm. um, forced us to, to really think about what we wanted to do for our lives to be like more purposeful um, mm-hmm. and, and really kind of define that for ourselves. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, Chris Jansen, who was an associate at the time at Opticos and is now a principal at LRK, mm-hmm. he was leaving. Um, he was actually working remotely in Dallas and um, they were looking for an associate and we just switched places, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chris is a good guy. I've known him a long time, too. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh so then I, you know, we had Dan, I had Dan on here, uh, yeah. you know, a few months ago and Dan's certainly one of my favorite people, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the whole new urbanism world. But so you worked at Opticos then for a little while before uh, jumping out in, into uh, the tech world. Uh, so talk a little bit about, you know, so once you go to Opticos, you're, are you doing project management and, and doing form-based codes basically at that point? Yeah, so um, it's interesting when I was kind of interviewing and, and talking to to Karen, she had asked me very specifically, she's like, do you want to be a designer or do you want to be a coder? Oh, good question. And I, yeah, and I really had to think about it because a lot of the rationale for understanding why was um, because of coding. And, um, but I had been presented with this question at Notre Dame too, and I think I really understood when I was doing my thesis that I wanted to be a designer. And um, so I was doing, um, I was definitely on the their kind of master planning side. I was doing mm-hmm. 
project managing like the we were a sub consultant on the downtown Oakland specific plan with um, Dover Cole and um, and then you know we were implementing some of the uh, sustainable communities like CCTA grant projects um, and so you know mostly at corridor planning or neighborhood planning um, type scale and then uh, if there were codes associated with that I would work on them mm-hmm. right so co- Tony is the coding director and right. um, I think you know for for other types of code, citywide codes, he's definitely um, the main person. Um, and so for me, it was more implementing the designs that me and my my team were working on. Um, and then, you know, it, most of my clients uh, that I was working with were um, public sector clients, but I did, um, I think uh, Dan had talked about the project in Papillion. I had worked on mm-hmm. um, the master plan uh, for that and was oh, cool. really an assistant PM with um, with John Mickey, who sometimes when we had like really big projects, we would actually have two PMs and um, kind of split the role so that someone could you know, really manage client relations and the other could help manage the design team, especially yeah. when we were traveling a lot. So, yeah. So I, I also skipped over, I probably should have spent a minute talking about, you know, you had this experience where you went back to school and you went to Notre Dame. And, yeah. I, and I think probably a lot of people who are not in this world don't realize um, how different Notre Dame is than a lot of other colleges uh, or universities in the architecture uh, and design world. It is really, or has had this focus for a while to, that is really very much about urban design and even, I guess, what we would call traditional uh, architecture and traditional urban design. So um, what was that experience like, especially piggybacking off of, you know, a very different uh, experience at UT Austin? Yeah. <laughs> I remember, okay, so they have this like drawing boot camp or architecture boot camp the first, I think it's like a week, maybe two, I think it was a week, a week prior to the session. And, uh, oh man, I just remember that. Uh, so we, we draw everything by hand. We hand draft, uh, we hand render. Um, and to me, there's, I mean, I know I went there, so obviously I'm going to have, a, you know, somewhat of a bias, but I do learn a lot better when I, when I'm like actually physically using my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I, you know, I mean, it, even the same thing comes down to notes. I used to write all my notes. Now I don't, but I have to kind of train my brain to yeah. be okay with typing everything. Um, but and it's just the kind of the way that I learned, but I remember this boot camp and we had to draw line weights and I was there, Kevin, I kid you not. I was there until 2 AM. Okay. <laughs> and, and of course there's like different skill sets, right? That Notre Dame only takes like 12 students in an incoming class, but they're at varying levels. So there were some, there were like a handful of people that had architecture undergraduate degrees from Notre Dame, some that had architectural undergraduate degrees that um, were from other schools and then some that had no architecture background and I was in that cohort. And so I'm sitting here like, I'm like calling, you know, I'm a, of course, Varun and I weren't married at that time and I'm calling him like crying. What am I doing here? You know, like I was not expecting this. And then um, of course I had to do an architecture degree, right? Cause I wasn't, didn't have an architecture, um, undergraduate, but I always had, you know, thought that, I was, I was not actually going to practice architecture, that I was going to use it to, to really better understand urban design. Um, and that was challenging, you know, I mean, doing, you know, structures and construction drawings and stuff, but 
I mean, all of that leads to a better understanding of the built environment, a better understanding of why we're getting, you know, some of the built form that we're getting today. You know, an appreciation for detail and rhythm and balance that I've always had, but it, you know, struck me in a, in a, a more emotional way instead of like an mm-hmm. understanding it. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, for my thesis, I did have to do a building, but I actually requested to start my thesis earlier, a semester earlier and do, um, kind of a neighborhood plan, um, and then work on the, um, one of the buildings in that, um, in that plan. And I mean, I just learned a lot in my own personal journey through that thesis and, and postgraduate school that I think I always think about because um, graduate school is an exploration. There's only so much that you are actually going to learn in your academic coursework. Um, the rest of it is like you're, you took pieces from it and you, and you really have to have this discipline or this curiosity to, to find out more, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think academia is ever going to answer all those questions. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely more self-directed uh, than undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's And it's interesting you tell that story. So, you know, for those who wouldn't know, like Notre Dame is notorious for producing graduates that have incredible hand drawing skills and rendering skills and and it's like I and and I can see that I can see that with the the blog I can see that behind you on the wall you've got some framed yeah. yes, drawings yeah. that you've done, yes. uh, and <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. So um, I want to tie that to the blog, but tell me a little bit yeah. what's the what would you say is like the commercial for what you're doing now and and for the work that you do? It's with Remix, is that right? Or, oh yeah, um, yeah. So. Yeah, so I'm a partner success manager. I basically have, you know, a portfolio of um, customers. Um, So right now I'm managing 78 um, kind of transit scheduling and streets customers. Um, We actually have a transportation planning platform. Um, You can, you know, you can do that for um, network design um, and then assess kind of equity and access, but also do your route planning, um, scheduling, things like that. Um, And then we have a street design side of the platform um, and you, you know, you can do complete street work, vision zero, um, you know, and so just based on my skill set, I'm the kind of streets uh, liaison, but the majority of my book of business is is transit. And it's funny because I started off this year managing like an ARR of 3.7 million and it's up to 5.1 right now. And Mm. I, it's uh yeah so um but really we just we handle the post sales life cycle right mm-hmm. so helping customers define success understanding um, what they want to do for onboarding and then you know for retention just making sure that you know um, we we help them define success and help them with trainings and then do you know project specific one on ones mm-hmm. um, and then we're kind of looking at growth and their kind of um, business reviews. So it's like, it's interesting because it's tangential to what I was mm-hmm. doing before. I mean, there are a lot of parallels to consulting, right? Client relations. Right. Um, but you have to be an industry expert to be able to to help customers, you know, and, um, and then, you know, a product, you have to teach yourself to be a product expert. Um, they see you as an advocate of the product, but they also see you as an advisor, right? Yeah. Which is why understanding the industry, understanding their pain points, knowing how to use data, which data sets they would need, um, especially if they're evaluating access and equity and patterns and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, so, I mean, and then just understanding their procurement process. It's really, you know, a lot of people who've worked in, you know, in private sector don't really understand what it takes to, to get things through a city or an agency. Um, Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time. It's usually (laughs) very complicated as you know. Um, So yeah, that's, I mean, I, uh, so I was reading this book um, and uh, I'll circle back to something else too, but I was reading this book called um, Steal Like an Artist. Have you read it? I've heard the, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so he talks about like, there are two types of people. There's, there's the person who can, um, who can uh, basically have their career in their art and they are okay with that. And then there's another type of person that needs their career to be something separate from their art. Uh-huh. And I guess I realized through this journey that at, at least in this season, as, as Ali yeah. put it, that yeah. that's, that's basically what I need. Um, you know, I have a two-year-old and um, I also, you know, um, and I think this is the reason why I've structured a lot of the things that I've structured um, today. But, um, you know, I, I left Opticos because I was having mental health issues and just like did not know how to really function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I needed time off. And, um, you know, Karen and Dan and Stefan were like really generous. I think, you know, uh, they really tried and we tried in different ways. But I had um, general anxiety disorder and major depression. And I did not know, like, one of my symptoms was that I could not talk. Like, it hmm. was so bad that I could not talk to my partner. Um, I had really bad paranoia. And, um you know, I needed medication, I needed therapy, I needed, mm-hmm. I, and I, and you know, the, the tough thing with mental health stuff is like, you're just testing, you know, medications. Right. But I remember one day I had like started this medication and then had to go to work. And I, I felt like I was in a cage. It was really weird. Like, you know, and I was like this, I can't, I can't do everything, you know? And, um, so yeah, it took almost a year off. Um, and, um, and that, so that was in 2017, uh, summer of 2017. And I started feeling better, you know, um, uh, things were starting to, to get better by like winter time. And, um, but in my silence, I was, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts and, uh, and a lot of books, you know, they were like my best friends. It was, it was funny, you know, but, um, uh, but it, it, you know, it got me through it. And, um, what I started to really love was like the cross pollination of ideas and really was kind of writing all of that down. And one day I was, you know, having dinner with my husband and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about writing this book. Uh, and, and I was like, I think that there's a really interesting connection with, with mental health and urbanism. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of laid out this thesis Um, for him, right? I've gone through ups and downs before. I just didn't know that I was living with this at all until, you know, I was, I was diagnosed with it, but um, it happened once in, in Dallas before we, we left. And then it happened in San Francisco. I think the difference in Dallas was we had moved to a townhouse and it was in an area where there was a light rail station, but there wasn't really good connectivity. There were no third places. So there wasn't this opportunity for like chance interactions. Hmm. And when I was in San Francisco, the difference was I could 
take the dog. I could go downstairs. I could go to a coffee shop. I could talk to the barista for as much or as little as I wanted to. And if I didn't want to talk, I could just be immersed with people that were somewhat like-minded. I mean, you know, and it just made me feel better. You know, it helped me lift my mood. And I'm not saying that's the only thing, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. obviously I went through a lot of other things, therapy and medication, all that. But I, I do think that, you know, social infrastructure, third places, like what you see in your environment and what you feel through your environment has a lot to do with with your mental health. And I was kind of searching for this answer while I was reading these books. And, you know, some people would, you know, maybe at the beginning they would talk about it, but then a lot of times it was the same arguments, right? Like how is physical movement in some way, uh, helping your mental health, not Mm -hmm. actually, you know, how are these patterns directly impacting your mental health? And so I shopped, I told my husband this first, he's like, you know, you should just do a blog. And I was like, but I I really want to write and paint. And, and I mean, I, I want to paint and draw, like I miss that creativity. And he's like, yeah, you should do it as a blog and then like, see what people react to. And so then I was like, okay. And then I shopped this idea around. So like, of course I hang out at Opticos, even if I'm not working there. And I'm like, (laughs) what do you, what do you guys think of this? And, and, you know, it seemed, you know, fairly, um, fairly, novel enough that I was like, okay, I'm just going to jump in and try it, see what happens. Yeah. Well, and and, and that's really gets to one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about the the blog, because it is really unique. And, uh, and it it does, I I guess the way I might describe it, it, it does talk a lot about issues that you might think of as almost like spiritual, uh, in Mm -hmm. nature. And, and certainly you talk a lot about mental health and, you know, how the design of places that you go to, how they, how they just really touch or resonate with your emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. really unique. There's very few people who kind of write about that. And so, so that was really kind of where you wanted to go from the beginning was to, to take that direction. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that Dennis, who was a principal at Townscape and, and, you know, Steve Muzan also writes about a lot, right? He talked mm-hmm. about this. Um, but, you know, um, it's this thought that, you know, we, uh, the places that we love, we form attachments to them. And because we have formed attachments to them, we want to reinvest in them over time, right? Mm-hmm. That's why timeless principles kind of pass on. So this whole thought of things being lovable, like, why? you know, what, what is it that we kind of gravitate towards? And so, you know, I've always been thinking about why, but more from a rationale of like, why this standard? And so instead of asking, or why this design decision, it's like, instead of asking those questions, and really kind of always digging into that, like, I felt like maybe there was a time to ask different questions. And it's still, relates to those things and you know but it's more about why do we form attachments to these places and then and what if we as designers and architects really focus more on how we make people feel Mm -hmm. right and that is qualitative more than it is quantitative and I think Christopher Alexander in his book Timeless Principles he talks about the the quality that cannot be named Hmm. and it's like you know not everything is quantitative and that's okay you know but that's also 
I mean, you're talking about most, you know, emotions, emotional research, and and then it's also like the defining the emotion itself, right? Um, I talk about joy because joy is an intense, momentary feeling of happiness, but that's where we form the threads. Happiness is the culmination of these moments of joy, mm-hmm. right, throughout your life, and so the the feeling of joy is actually stronger. It's just fleeting, right? It ebbs and flows. And so, you know, how do we relate the patterns and what we feel with like, you know, these, these things that, you know, through, through various research, we've seen that there are certain patterns where we innately kind of feel um, connections to them in, in various ways. And, and so that, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, when I started, um, there were a few resources and the ones that I liked, I would kind of cross-reference to what they had and like dug deeper into the books that maybe they were um, looking at. And I would say like emotional research is pretty like novel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Brene Brown talks about that or, you know, and then I think my most recent post about the emotion of awe um you know, we, uh, I think even there, um, the YouTube videos that were coming out of Arizona State University, they were saying that it was still like really early. And so now it, it is harder for me to, or just takes longer for me to release posts because it, um, I'm doing a lot more research, like reading more books for, for every single one. Um, you know, the more and more I understand or the more that I know where to go or where to look. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can see that. And, and, and obviously it's not like your, your goal is not to crank out a post, you know, once a week or something like that. It's really, it's obviously. I mean, initially I had really ambitious goals and then I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But obviously you're trying to provide something with a, a depth and a quality to it that you just don't usually see. And it has this combination of the, what, not just what you write about, but also the imagery, uh, which are often drawings that you create. Uh, mm-hmm. yourself or, or photographs you're taking. Um, it is, it, and it is fascinating because, you know, if you read a whole bunch of uh, common sort of literature about architecture, about urban planning, it, it does make it sound like it's like, oh, this is like, you check this box and you check that box. And, you know, it's yeah. like, it's a science and it all works and it's magical. Yeah. There you go. And that's, that's <laughs> all you need to do. And we forget that there's so much that's forgetting about this is really for human beings. You know, we're, we're doing this work and creating places for, for humans. And, you know, I have uh, argued with people for years that it's, it's amazing how few of our conversations revolve around just the idea of beauty, like the importance of beauty to to humans, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that that I used to still, sometimes I'll end a presentation by, you know, saying like human, human pleasure is not a frill. Like that's Mm -hmm. actually the core essence of what, makes great places. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to with, you know, talking about joyful places and how they, how they connect to people. Yeah. Well, and you, you brought up something that, um, uh, I talk about, um, this was one of my, my hardest posts to, to tie together, but, um, it was the one that I did on Florence and I had introduced, um, this, uh, this book called Together by Vivek Murthy. And he was the Surgeon General under uh, Barack Obama, and President Obama, excuse me, and now he is under um, President Biden. But um, 
you know, he, he talks a lot about, um, you know, what matters most in life is, is love and, and human connection. Right. And that if we think about this from the built form, it's like, you know, we have timeless elements of our buildings and our places that are aspects that we love and, and we form attachments to, right? And that we have this vital need for for um, social connection, right? These emotional responses come with memories uh, typically tied to a connection that you've made. And those relationships are really essential, right? And there are like three degrees of those. Um, but but really like loneliness and this ec- epidemic of loneliness is, you know, what we're dealing with, what people kind of don't feel in the, uh, I mean, definitely feel, excuse me, in the suburbs. Um, and they don't necessarily have these places where, you know, you have kind of a deep, you know, they're, you know, you have kind of three degrees, right? Your closest people, your partner, and then your family and your friends. And then this third one, which is like a community of people where you share interests, right? Like chance mm-hmm. interactions. But the other thing that I've had a hard time explaining to people, um, or and even to myself, to really kind of get this message out, it's a, definitely a, uh, a remembrance of Phil Bess here. Um, uh, but uh, it's a you know an Aristotelian um, principle, but it's basically that we find balance beautiful, right? And that that balance is basically this beauty that alludes to a balanced inner self that we describe as happy, right? That we are constantly striving to achieve. And so when we see that in our environment, we are trying to resemble that balance that that touches us with their beauty. And I, I mean, I just, I remember reading that in Architecture of Happiness. I remember um, you know, thinking about it when I was doing the Florence post, I'm like, this is, this is not an easy concept to tie mm-hmm. built form patterns with this understanding of, of beauty and a balanced inner self. And, yeah. but that's what buildings really give to us. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it makes me think a lot about, you know, the time that, you know, we spent living in, in Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two things that, that always really stood out, uh, to me, uh, from, from just our years living there, which is, you know, it was amazing how, I don't know the best way to describe it, but it was like, you could just walk around and there were just moments you had where you would just catch yourself and, you know, be like, my God, this place is so damn beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it, it was hard to describe, but you could have that experience daily. And it was just yeah. obviously not just the architecture. It's the combination of everything. It's the landscape. Uh, and, and Trees, yeah. It, yeah. And it was, it was, that was, it was an amazing experience living there. And I think the second thing that I always took away that I, I, I felt like if I ever did sort of neighborhood planning uh, scale stuff again, that I, that I really learned was just, I, I think, you know, I always knew the, I always knew the importance of, public space, uh, from a more abstract sense doing work. Uh, I didn't, I don't think I had entirely at all a full appreciation of the importance of public space until we lived in Savannah, uh, which has abundant, uh, public Mm -hmm. space, at least in the historic part of the city. And your, 
you know, if I were to draw a plan of Savannah for a developer, it would look like it has just like way too many squares and public space <laughs> and, you know, it looks too expensive to maintain and everything else. But it's remarkable how uh, you find that it's all different. It's all used. It all has its own personality. And because it's so rich in public space, people really do walk around yeah. and you have all of those informal uh, social connections that you were just talking about. Like we would constantly just go out for a walk and you would run into somebody you knew. Uh, yeah. And that's an amazing emotional uh, connection mm -hmm. to a place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about that a lot too, um, for, for, for two reasons. Um, one is, you know, I wrote uh, this post during COVID and it was about um, San Francisco and um, basically seeing the joy in ordinary moments and based and re-enchanting walks where you, you know, appreciate um, something that is actually giving you that emotional connection. And so, in, to me, in Savannah, when I think about the public realm, it's always the double the double height stoops. I, mm. I, they're so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And of course, the side yard buildings, I mean, I, you just can't get yeah. over them, right? Yeah. And anytime you see the, the streetscape with the trees, like, you know that you're looking at Savannah, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, thinking about, right, it's so easy to walk through a city, a city like Savannah, a city like San Francisco, and just um, like not notice the the public realm or the background buildings because of the balance and the rhythm, you're you know you're just the harmony right. You're just used to it. Right. Um, and then it's another thing to really really think of like what are the things that you're gravitating towards. And mm -hmm. to me, it's frontages, right? It's and um, uh, and it's streetscape that I love. But then, you know, the the what you were talking about with open space, you know, I wrote this down because um, CNU has done such a good job with with streets, right? And um, and especially when you're working, like when we were working on the downtown Oakland specific plan, it's like, you know, you really have to think about the streetscape because the land values are too high to really think about like surface level open space, right? But uh, Eric Clindenberg talks about the need for social infrastructure, right? And so gifts to the street, um, open space, right? And, and then community buildings, things like that are all like third places are all part of social infrastructure and help us see empathy and connect um, with people. And so, um, you know, I feel like open space has always been the one that people let go of in implementation. And, and like you were saying, it's, it's expensive. It's, you know, you have to think about maintaining it, mm -hmm. um, you know, all yeah. those things, but we lose sight of the need for surface level open space. And so many ordinances allow for private like balcony space and rooftops to be counted towards their, you know, open space allocations. And so we lose service level open space, right? This was happening in Oakland. This was happening in Seattle. Um, and, and, um, you know, we talk about the range of open spaces based on the, the context and the environment, but, but it's really, you know, implementing them because I think that's the most important, like one of the most important parts of, you know, social infrastructure. And the reality is they don't have to be that big, you know, um, which is yeah. what, it, yeah. you know, sometimes is, is the most surprising, but it's also, I think one of the things that we really should be focusing on to, um, so that we have the, the infrastructure that we need within the built environment and to have a really strong public realm. Yeah. Um, so one other question comes to mind, I guess, I guess if you don't want to 
answer this. You don't, you know, if you don't feel comfortable answering it, don't. But I am curious with the, you know, the the history you had and the the, the combination of the the mental health struggles plus um, your interest in cities and and this realization that getting out and walking around was really good for you. Uh, was was the COVID uh, era? How was that for you? Was that hard? Was that especially hard? <laughs> um, no, and I'll tell you why. Um, because um, one, I had, I mean, at that point, I had gone through a lot of a lot of this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, even though you know, I mean, time does heal a lot of things, right? right? So I don't feel the same kind of pain points that I used mm-hmm. to. But one of the things that I really had to get over was, I mean, it was definitely a personal journey, right? Because um, I think Stumbling on Happiness, other books talk about the fact that our brain as a survival mechanism remembers negative memories stronger than positive ones. And so for me, when I was going through depression, right, your brain tries to rationalize why you are so bad by pulling all of these memories, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to like reverse engineer all of that out during therapy so you don't feel that way anymore, right? And that's, that's, untangling that is, is really hard. Um, during, you know, during, so the reason I've kind of set this up then, I call it my mental health egg, egg basket, right? (laughs) Is that, uh, you know, my triggers were basically that I was tying my entire self-worth to, um, my job and my Mm -hmm. success. Right. And, um, and I think that, um, I, I just had to learn that that that's not true. Right. And a lot of that year was like, well, I'm not working and I'm still doing like, I'm having a great time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and so, um, so one of my eggs then is, is the blog because it is a fully creative space for myself. Right. Um, it fills my cup in a way that nothing else does. And even if I was doing project work, um, you don't get to design and draw and paint that way um, or freely think, you know, in the same way on project work, you're still constrained in different ways. Um, but then I knew that I wanted to practice um, and take projects on. So I wanted to have the the job in tech that was separate so that I would get something consistent, but then also be able to do project work. So luckily, I mean, even though the projects didn't like start right at the beginning of 2020, that's when I basically started working in tech and could actually kind of mm. implement this structure. And so I was actually really happy. Uh, I take one to three projects a year um, and uh, really just focus on working with people who I've worked with before who know the value that I can add. And sometimes that's as a sub-consultant, sometimes it's um, an extension of staff. Uh, I've done both uh, of the design team basically. Um, But so far since 2020, I've been able to kind of hit that goal and have really enjoyed um, being, being able to do those things. Um, the tech side. Um, so what I learned when I was a sole proprietor is I, I do not function well alone. Um, <laughs> and so I don't want to be a, a full on sole proprietor because I think that I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, at least right now in this season, I, it's like building that pipeline and all of those things. I, it's just a little too much for everything else that I have going on. Yeah. Um, 
and you know it takes a long time for projects to land and so you really are doing that all the time but if i was at a firm you know um you know at a higher level position i would be project managing plus marketing plus business development plus designing or managing a design team. So really, this is just a different way of allocating my time that hopefully gives me, um, you know, or it, and it does give me the balance that, that I'm looking for. Um, last thing about COVID, but I, you know, that's when we, um, ba- we, you know, our babies and IVF baby, and, you know, we had gone through this, you know, retrieval and implant process. Mm-hmm. And then we finally, uh, um, you know, did that uh, during COVID world. Well, we're not doing anything else, you know, so, <laughs> we are, you know, inside, uh, um, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so it, it's been, I, I, I know that COVID was hard for a lot of uh, different reasons, you know, yeah. like not being able to see as many people, but also being in San Francisco allowed us to see, you know, our kind of close friends in public spaces. I never felt alone. That's the good. only thing, yeah, the only thing that I really did miss was not being able to see our family because we used to, it's almost like every other month we would yeah. see, we would see them and then like it just kind of all stopped. And I think that was harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, the other thing I want to ask you about, what a, your more recent uh, couple of posts, you, you had this really interesting uh, an unusual journey going to Paris uh, yes. for uh, for the summer or for an extended period of time, right? For like yeah. two or three months. We were like uh, we were there for six weeks. Six, okay, six weeks. Okay, yeah. so talk about your decision to do that, and with your uh, your infant uh, or your yes. <laughs> uh, and and uh, what kind of what prompted that, and what was yeah. what was that experience like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I read this book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Have you read it? Uh-uh. I see you smiling. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it basically talks about, uh, you know, having a rich life and basically a purposeful life that's um, where you build it around intention and your values. And so, you know, we really thought about like what this this meant for us. And I think at the core of it is basically having a freedom of choice, right? Mm-hmm. Freedom is really important to us. Us, uh, not just uh, me and my husband, but us meaning as, as, as a species, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, so we defined a few values. One was um, renting and renting in a dense walkable area, right? Where we could have a certain level of flexibility. In San Francisco, we didn't have a car. In Dallas, we have one car. Obviously working remotely, mm-hmm. you know, helps a lot with that. Um, and then picking a home base, right? We chose to pick a home base near family. Our parents aren't going to be around forever. And for the the phase in our lives where they are, we want to be near them and we want our kids to yeah. be near them, you mm-hmm. know? And then um, the other one was, you know, we, we love travel and exploration, but I think I, I talked about this a little bit, but what the move to San Francisco for us was a risk, right? We had just spent all of our cash in a house, like we literally left six months after buying Mm -hmm. that house. If any slight thing went wrong, (laughs) it would have been like, you know, we would have been back and probably living at home, you know, (laughs) it was like, um, but also those risks kind of push us in a way that um, it just takes us out of our comfort zone. And I think what we decided was that we wanted to live, like truly immerse ourselves and live in another place 
and that we were going to try to do that every year. Um, We did say that it was going to be for a long period of time. I think I pushed too hard, too fast with my husband. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Paris was a lot for him. Uh, It's funny because, you know, I lived in Rome when I was at Notre Dame and I knew what living in Europe was like. He didn't know. And so I think I mentally was way more prepared for that. Um, Also, I think what I realize now is like, we were mentally like preparing for that trip, like during COVID, right? So we had a lot more time to really think about it. Um, And so I think moving forward, we will still try to do it every year, but it may not be for the same duration. We may think this year we're mixing in, like we're we're doing Manhattan for two weeks and we're basically gonna Mm. be in Brooklyn. but we're taking the time off. We're not working um, remotely during that time. Yeah. I think uh, next year might also be domestic. And then I think every three years is a good cadence for international, at least based on what I did when I was a kid, right? I used to go to <laughs> India and we would spend two to three months in India. I mean, it's it's definitely doable, but there's there's balance in it. And I remember at the beginning of this year, it was like, you know, we were thinking about uh, Carmel in California, yeah. but it was hard to find housing. I mean, I was in the, and uh, housing that we in the area that we wanted to be, and it was turning out to be more expensive than being in 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 one of the best neighborhoods in Paris. I mean, it was hmm. just, you know. Um, and then the other values were uh, kind of building wealth while living in a city which is hard and mm-hmm. living debt free, which I think we, we kind of achieved a couple of years ago and have been trying to, um, we do want to get a house, um, in, but in the M streets, which is one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Dallas, obviously, I think we've put in six offers and we, mm. none of them have been accepted. Um, because the, you know, it's just a highly desirable neighborhood. We've had a lot of influx of population and it's like the only neighborhood that has a good elementary school and you can walk to a coffee shop. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like it's, huge criteria. No, it's a little thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, so I, I, I mean, I think one of the things that I started to realize when I put these values together and, and what I talk about when I'm, you know, I've done a couple presentation, or actually a, a number on this topic. And usually when I'm talking about patterns and relating it to mental health, at the end, I, I talk about, you know, basically, like, how do you pull this? Why are we pulling this all together? Why does this even matter? And really thinking about it more as a call to action and how can it be applied? But you know, all of these values are actually really hard to achieve. And they're hard to achieve because, you know, and I, I know you know this study, um, but, you know, there was a ULI study in 2015 that said that 50% of the population desires to live in a walkable environment. Mm-hmm. And then um, Smart Growth America just released another study recently that said only 1.2% of our metropolitan land area consists of walkable patterns, mm-hmm. right? And that just, the lack of supply makes these environments like unaccessible for the majority of the population, yep. right? And I think that's, it really limits our freedom of choice, right? So coming back to the fact that that's really what delights us and we are constrained because yeah. we're not able to access the places we want to be. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. It. I think I uh, I may have uh, emailed you when when you wrote the started writing about Paris because it it had just kind of reminded me and in, inspired me a little bit. You know, I know uh, my wife and I had talked for a while, like uh, after we had had our little ones, that 
we had this ideal life in mind where we would take <laughs> off like every summer we would go live for a month or two in some different yeah. place and just immerse ourselves in it and uh, we haven't you know we haven't really done that i we in a certain sense we have i guess because we we've built a routine out of going to maine uh, every summer for a, a week or two uh, to be around her family and to just kind of be there for a while which has been great but it's not quite the same as you know going and living in either a foreign country or another city for a while. And uh, so it was cool, really cool to read that you guys were doing that and kind of reminded me that we should talk about, are we, is that something we really want to do and, yeah. and how do we do it? It's, it gets, it certainly gets more complicated when kids are school age, yeah. uh, but it's, it's a unique yeah, it's deal. Fun. I know there are a lot of people who do it and uh, there's a lot of people in that whole financial independence community who really do it. Um, yeah. So it's, 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 uh, I just think that's a cool experience. How was it uh, for the little one? Oh, well, okay. I, I mean, I thought it was great. I was just tired a lot, you know, um, <laughs> because we had a, um, we, I got really lucky. One of my coworkers at Remix, um, her nanny during COVID um, actually went to graduate school in Paris and had finished her master's Um right before we we got there and so she was kind of like in between school and looking for something and so she was watching Jushin and she would watch him from uh 3 p.m to like 9 p.m um and so we would work uh I you know we would still work um normal U.S. hours um but then we would wake up in the morning because you know um, what what you don't know about Paris, what I didn't know, is that it in the summer it doesn't get dark till like 10 p.m. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it gets light really fast. Mm -hmm. um, so they they these babies are not going to be sleeping the whole <laughs> time that they normally do. And so um, he'd wake up really early, but it would be our chance to kind of explore the city. Um, so we'd be out around 7:38, and then we'd be out till like one, two o'clock, um, come back, put him down for a nap. And then, you know, when he woke up, we would be working at that time. So it worked out. It's just that, yeah, I mean, you're working until like one, two in the morning, which, which yeah. is really hard. And then, um, you know, we were staying in a one bedroom. Um, and so, I, you know, right. He's my, my baby's like has his own room and is sleep trained. That's, you know, important. Yes. <laughs> so, but we were co-sleeping and I was like, oh, this is not, this is not for me. I definitely was sleeping <laughs> on the couch a lot. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think he, I honestly, <laughs> I mean, everybody says this, I would look at my husband's stories or whatever. They were like, man, he was just living his best life, right? <laughs> Eating a croissant every morning. And um, it's so funny because I'll come, I'll give him a croissant here and he won't touch it unless yeah. it's from like certain bakeries. I was like, mm -hmm. dang. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention that, that croissant in Paris was like 50 cents and here it's like $5. It's <laughs> you know, yeah, so crazy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's amazing. Well, uh, that's really cool. I mean, I guess, you know, they call it the city of light for a reason, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it was just people forget how far north uh, it actually is. And, yeah. Well, and the other thing was, you know, before I was, I loved, I mean, you know, I had spent a lot of time in Italy and yeah, I, I don't right. think that I had gone to Paris a few times, but it, 
I, I still at that before going, my preference was still Italy, but then being in Paris, it's such a, a livable place. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with the public space, um, right? The open spaces, uh, even the way that they treat you, um, with kids, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's just, it's so, they're so accepting of it in ways like you go to restaurants even late at night and it's, you know, it's totally fine. Um, and it just felt a lot more livable yeah. than, uh, than, you know, my experience in Italy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's the most, uh, it's the most livable large city in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I mean, that's been my experience. Um, I, I'm curious what kind of, uh, what kind of feedback do you get, uh, on the blog from other people? Yeah. I mean, usually, um, usually it's kind of similar to when you email me, it's like, Oh, either how did you do that? Or, or, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot, a lot of people actually resonated with the, the awe post, um, mm -hmm. the one in Paris. Um, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, that they're inspired by something and, um, they write back because they went through some experience. I remember, um, an, uh, another kind of, um, friend of mine, uh, who knows my journey. He's like, it's so interesting that you found beauty back in urbanism, that that was really what, kind of pulled you pulled you out um and 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 he thought the same thing for himself too when and he had gone through his own journey mm -hmm. um and you know i think it's just like pointing out things that are are beautiful and associating it to an emotion i think just people people aren't as used to it and i think that's just what resonates because a lot of times it's you know a lot of data and we're yeah. obviously trying to prove you know a lot yeah. of what we're doing to council members to the public but i've always found it fascinating when i talk to the public on projects and things like that um they understand the emotional connection way more than, mm -hmm. than the, the data. Yeah. And that's why usually when you're doing a visioning process and you're, you know, curating photos that people love, you know, things that they want to emulate from that place, it's, it always is typically, um, these patterns and they, and I think when I started this, I wanted, I wanted to test what resonated with, you know, normal people, not yeah. in the industry, but just, you know, how can I help my friends who live in urban places actually express why they love that place? So then if they want to advocate for something, they know what they're advocating for. Um, and, uh, and, and really testing to see, see how that resonates. So sometimes it's the writing style. Sometimes, um, it's, the, it's the way that I draw. Like I don't erase anything. I just keep going. Jim Richards taught me that, hmm. right. Uh, just, just the mistakes make it, make it beautiful. Or, um, sometimes if I'm rendering something and I finish, and this is a quality of Notre Dame, but it's like, it's too perfect. Yeah. It, and you know, for whatever reason, it feels static, even with the mistakes and the line drawing or whatever. Um, and so like putting confetti, right, putting multicolor like splashes on the drawing just make gives it more movement, makes something that's imperfect perfect because yeah. it's it's not exactly right. And, um, you know, so so a lot of it is just is just trying to understand what 
gravitates to people. I haven't had a lot of, I mean, to be honest, people can definitely critique me all day long, (laughs) but, um, you know, I, I don't feel like people have gone that direction. I was definitely afraid when I, when I started the, the blog and knowing, you know, obviously what the new urbanist community and intellectuals are like and, (laughs) and then going through, you know, crits in architecture school. I mean, it was just like, I was scared, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, like, this is my space. This is my creative space. And, you know, there's a lot of content out there. You can choose to read it or not, but it's just that, um, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable, to put ourselves out there from a creative standpoint. And the reality is we're all doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hardest part of what we practice is like, we're so emotionally invested in what we're doing. Um, And some people can do that. And some people can't, right? Like, you know, it just depends on what structure. But that's, I think that's the reality of our profession. And so I definitely respect, you know, when people put out content because it's hard. It's, you know, you're putting a piece of yourself out there yeah. and you don't know what you're going to get back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's probably a great place to, to wrap. Uh, I think that's really well said. And uh, I definitely uh, encourage anybody uh, to check out uh, Joyful Urbanist and Arthi's writing. It's, it's, it is very, very unique. Uh, I was delighted to see it when you first started writing and oh, putting thanks. it out there. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed what you've put out. And like I said, it's, it's, it's one of the really cool things is that you're not really trying to crank out like uh, content every week. So the things you put out really have a lot of great thought and, uh, and uh, they're organized be- beautifully on, on the page. So it's really, really great stuff. Uh, I expect at some point there will be a book. Uh, out of all this. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, what Christopher Alexander in A Pattern Language, he he says at the beginning of the book, he's like, you yeah. know, somebody should rewrite this. <laughs> this was done in the 60s. And I'm like, ooh, challenge accepted. Um, yeah. You know, we'll see. Uh, yeah. But also the challenge is like, you know, basically a book then not reading as just a series of blog posts, which yeah. I think. It's is actually, it's it really a great way to think about, you know, potentially creating a book is using a blog yeah. as a way to, you know, create your content and test it and put it out there. So yeah. It's also a journey, a long journey, you know, I mean, that's like, it's not, I think, I mean, now thinking about it, the amount of research, I remember this one woman who was writing a book saying, you know, it takes, it took her 10 years and she had kind of started with a blog too. And I was like, yeah, I get that. I get it now. (laughs) I didn't understand then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the, the book that I wrote, which was published in like 2014, I mean, I think I originally had the idea for that at least 10 years before I wrote it. And so it was just, you know, a lot of it was, you know, when am I going to find the time to actually sit down and write it? Uh, And it just took years before I could really collect my thoughts and, uh, and, and then find the time to actually execute it. Uh, And then, you know, once I did that, it actually came, it all came together pretty quickly, but it's just a challenge, you know, especially when you're a busy person and you've got a life and you've got a family and everything else. It's, it's all a challenge. Um, all right. So I do like to ask people as I wrap, uh, yes. since this is the Messy City podcast, you know, if you have a, a, a place, a neighborhood, a city or town that uh, is sort of a favorite that meets uh, that description or or what would what would you have on the list? Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking about this and I, I I I love seeing moments where you can tell 
where the evolution in a city has happened. Um, so I'll use San Francisco and a couple of neighborhoods as an example. But we lived in Soma, and which was, uh, and we lived a, a block south of Market. And I remember that um, fronting an alley, there was an old fire station, and it was, and it was this wonderful short shop front, two to three stories, right, um, totally vacant. Uh, <laughs> and then you know you have these high rises that actually front kind of the main thoroughfares, but it's just this quiet you know, moment where you know that the city has kind of evolved around this and that the scale was so different at one time. Um, and then you see that same moment in, um, in Pacific Heights on Union Street. Uh, you know, you've got these Victorians with shop fronts at the ground floor and they front the main thoroughfares. And then there's this one moment mid block where um, there are all these carriage homes that house uh, kind of artist studios and it's quiet, but it's like this oasis with, you know, landscaping and other things, bikes, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just such a special place. Um, and then this last one, uh, same along the same street, but um, it's a Victorian, but they have taken the garage and converted it to a coffee shop. Um, and it, ha- it houses Wrecking Ball Coffee, if you want to look at it on Google Earth, but it's awesome. And I saw the same pattern in Seattle in these areas where there's a slower evolution, right? The city is not necessarily like pumping money into these places, but it's it's just this quiet evolution of, you know, starting to mix uses. And um, I don't know, it was one of my one of my favorite moments in the city. So it seems like uh, continuing a theme, you love the imperfections. Yes, but, I, I really do. But yeah. that also As follows your theme. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, I like the way you put it here earlier about the, the sort of the perfect nature of imperfections. And so yes. uh, it's really a cool way to look at life and you look at yourself and, and also just look at the things that we build. So mm-hmm. uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate yeah, catching up with you and uh, take care.